Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we are pleased to be speaking with my friend Drew Dick. Drew is an acquisitions editor at, for Moody Publishers. He's a contributing editor at Christianity Today's church leader site, CT Pastors, and the author of a few books, including Generation X Christian, Yawning at Tigers, and a new title we're going to talk with him about today, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. Drew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I, I got to ask you, first of all, where do you get the nerve? <laughs> where do I get the nerve? <laughs> Writing Uh-oh. about self-control, and now we all have to think about this. Yeah, well, I think it's just that I've been known for my incredible self-control for so long. Is that what... <laughs> and just, yeah, and just being in phenomenal physical shape that people just said, Drew, when are you going to write your book about discipline and self-control? Yeah. No, no, that's not true. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, sadly, uh, it, it's kind of the opposite thing where I realized, you know, I got some work to do. I, I got to grow in this area. And so that's why I was attracted to the topic uh, in the first place. And actually, originally, I was just kind of studying and researching for myself, and it ended up morphing into a book project. Yeah. So, I mean, is that sort of um, your approach is, uh, you know, I, I've learned over the years that if I want to learn something, I study it as if I'm preparing to teach it. Uh-huh. So is it is it that sort of thing where you think that this is something I really need and therefore uh, I'm I'm not an expert in this so let me see if I can write a book about it and and thereby uh, become more self controlled. Yeah, and especially with a topic like this, it was important at least for me to kind of you know take the approach of hey dear reader I am on this journey with you. Yeah. I have by no means arrived. Um, yeah. and, and have room to grow. And honestly, like I was probably three or four books into researching this topic before it even occurred to me that I might write on the topic okay. uh, because I was originally just thinking about myself. Um, and it's turned out to be a bit of a mistake because now if I like order a Sunday or eat an extra piece of pizza, people are like, aren't you the self-control guy? Like yeah. what's wrong? What's going on here? <laughs> it's, I'm in perfect control of this menu. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Right. This is very intentional. Yeah. I'm, well, eating, it's a, I'm eating too much on purpose. It, it, it's a genius subject really, because as I was thinking about it, it, you know, obviously self-control is part of the fruit of the spirit. So, right. um, you know, thus it's, it's required of all Christians. And and yet I never hear, or, or at least rarely hear, anyone ever really talking about it, right? So, you yeah. know, you know, beyond the you know the personal journey, what did you see, or what sort of prompted you, inspired you to write on on the subject? Yeah, well, I think it's both, you know, my personal experience, and you know, don't imagine that I was out doing anything especially sinister, but just realizing that I had all these, especially spiritual disciplines, that I wanted to be more serious about and had a hard time uh, instituting those in my life. And then also looking out across the broader culture, you know, I was I was writing the book right when the whole Me Too thing was blowing up. Okay. And of course, you know, I don't want to get into it, but there, as you know, there have been a lot of uh, similar scandals in the church. And so I started to realize that, um, man, this is an essential sort of thing. And I think you're right, we don't talk about self-control much. I think partly just the broader culture is not into this topic. It sounds very repressive and Victorian to start talking about self-control. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, oh, man, don't don't talk to me about that. You know, we're about more about self-expression, I would say, than, than things like self-control and restraint. 
Um, and yet, of course, like you said, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's sort of a non-negotiable uh, part of the Christian life. You can't just say, well, yeah, that's not my thing. I'll focus on other things. Self-control is a must. Yeah, I mean, you you sort of touched on it, but where do you see, uh, just in terms of the general culture, not necessarily in, in evangelicalism, um, I want to talk about that in just a second, but where do you see the dominant problems culturally with self-control? You mentioned a couple things, but why does the world need this, I guess? Yeah. Well, I think I think people are coming to terms with it because we've seen so many high profile failings, okay. moral failings, whether it's in the financial sector, in Hollywood, sexual stuff. Uh, so I think there is a realization that something's gone awry. And as a culture, basically, the only sin is to not express what's most deeply felt in your heart. Right. Um, and I think I hope that there's a realization dawning that maybe that's not enough. Uh, maybe there is a place for restraint, for putting other people and their needs in front of your own. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would hope that people are waking up to the need for discipline. Um, and, of course, though, as as Christians, um, it's it's even more essential because I think the most sobering thing is not only will a lack of self-control ruin your own life and, and threaten, you know, your own well-being, but ultimately – it harms other people, and and this is really sobering, especially if you're a, a Christian leader or if you're a pastor. Um, it can end up actually doing damage to the name of Christ, uh, and that's that's something that you know not to get too heavy this early yeah. in our conversation, but man, that that should that should uh, get our attention for sure and make us serious about this topic. Yeah, but what about the you know the average Christian? I mean, obviously every every Christian has the potential because of our fallen nature to just make a smoking crater of their own life in mm. in a hundred uh, different ways, uh, if not a thousand. But what are just some of the, the garden variety um, temptations or struggles? Where, where, where do Christians need this right now? What are you seeing just in terms of, you know, garden variety evangelicalism? What is our, our problem right now in terms of self-control? Yeah. Well, I like to kind of think of it in terms of, you know, the sins of commission and omission, right? It's it's not just, I think when people think of this topic, they think of lust, right? And obviously that's a big one, especially with the epidemic of porn that we have yeah. um, and things like that. So that, that's, that's for real, but it's also overcoming the inertia of your own kind of spiritual apathy and laziness to, you know, really engage in, in reading God's word, uh, in being in community, which for a lot of us, take self-control, uh, for praying. My goodness, like when I was <laughs> writing the book, I tried to do like institute some of these things I was talking about in my own life and did kind of a little journal-esque type thing with it. And I remember one of my early goals was just to pray for 10 minutes every morning. And that sounds super simple. Um, and I remember setting my, my timer on my phone. I was like, okay, no problem. I'll knock this out. And I, I got down on my knees like a weirdo in my office because I work from home and I can do that. Um, and I remember thinking there's something wrong with the timer. You know, I, it, it's been at least 20 or 30 minutes and I get up and it had been like seven minutes and you just realize <laughs> it's humbling, right? Um, you just realize that, man, your, your, your heart, and you know all about this, you've written at length about it, but your heart is bent towards selfishness, towards laziness. Um, and I think so much of this topic isn't just sitting back and kind of having this steely resolve to resist the sins, doing one of the dirty dozen, but it's actually a matter of 
feeding your soul with the right things, the things of God, you know, obeying Jesus' command to come to him when you're thirsty. And then when you do that, uh, there's a great phrase from the, the Scottish preacher, uh, Thomas Chalmers. He talks about the expulsive power of a new affection, yeah. right? That if you're filling up with the things of God, it has a way of pushing certain vices and sins out of your life. So anyway, I, I know I'm getting a little off topic, but I think that's a big part of this topic. It's not just a matter of becoming some sort of disciplined guru ninja who can kind of say no to every temptation. It's a matter of going to Jesus and being satisfied with him. And that is 90% of the battle, at least. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on just the availability for expression, the opportunities to to act in uncontrolled ways seem to be more abundant than they've ever been, um, particularly when it comes to the tongue, when it comes to speech. Um, uh-huh. So I, I think about self-control quite a bit, um, you know, for myself, certainly, um, but also, and, and perhaps I shouldn't, you know, think more about others this way, but I tend to think self-control is something that is severely lacking um, on the Internet, in particular social media and social oh. media use. So I'm scrolling through Twitter and I just think, you know, two-thirds of this stuff, you know, two-thirds of these things shouldn't be said or at least shouldn't be said this way. And I wonder how some of the environments we swim in and some of the tools we use even uh, sort of exacerbate our our, our lack of self-control or tempt us um, away from this. Do you talk about that in the book at all? Is there some? I do. Yeah, yeah I have a whole chapter on, on tech. And I think you, you nailed it. It's true. It's not that, obviously, human nature has been human nature yeah. know, for forever. <laughs> and Christians of every generation had certain temptations to resist the world, the flesh, and the you know all that stuff. Uh, but I think the Internet in particular has amplified certain temptations, certainly, right, when you think of lust. Yeah. It, it certainly wasn't that available. It's literally at your fingertips now. That's or right. when you think of gambling or shopping, you name it, every vice is shoved into your face constantly. But then, you're right, in, in more subtle ways, you have to exercise restraint. I've had that same experience. You're, th- you know, looking at the things on Twitter and Facebook and going, why did that guy say that? You know, I think that all the time when I look at your feed, Jared. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do, I'm too. Not at all. Not at all. Why anyway, did I no. say that? <laughs> and I get the temptation because I'm a highly opinionated person, and I see things, and the temptation is to react so, yeah, when we think about self-control, you might think of just resisting lust, but it's also resisting going into that partisan rant or reacting to someone's absurd comment or or taking the bait and getting in an online fight that's really just going to make you both look dumb and isn't actually going to you know, defend the gospel or, or actually minister to anyone. Uh, I think that's a particular challenge for church leaders, too, because you can do damage to your own reputation by by getting into the wrong sort of exchanges online, so yeah, no, it's it it it's a totally different game now. Uh, and again, uh, obviously, this is my pet topic right now, but it all involves self control. Yeah, it's it's more needed than ever. Yeah, you know, I think there was a time, um, you know, before this availability, before kind of the you know democratization of um, of speech, and well, you know, we've always had mm. in a sense free speech, but. But just the ability for anyone to say anything, almost to anybody, um, because of the platform of the internet, the opportunity suddenly becomes an obligation or 
uh, you know, the fact that we can do something somehow gets translated in our brain to mean that we <laughs> should do something or say something. And, and I think of Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about how everything is permissible, uh, but not everything is profitable, um, you know, that he has a right to do anything, but he will not be mastered by anything. And, and that just comes to mind so often, not just in my own consideration of how I tweet, obviously, but, um, you know, when, when I'm rubbed wrong by how other people are, are, are tweeting, um, and sometimes I even, you know, agree with their opinions, but I just think, man, you know, you, you, you could have said that differently or this wasn't the right time to say it. And I just think the sure. opportunities, the doors are, are, are more open than they've ever been for us to, you know, exercise a lack of restraint in some of these things. Oh, that's so true. And I think, you know, I actually think that's great, the democratization, like you put it, of of communication that, that has been facilitated by these new media are wonderful because people that are that never would have had a voice because they weren't organizational leaders get to, you know, get out there. And, I mean, I can go and, you know, troll Tim Keller if I want. Yeah, uh, and people <laughs> so, do. <laughs> and people do. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think, yeah, one and so many so many um, cases in which we need restraint, I think one of the big ones, this is a temptation particularly for me, is to comment on things that you are not an expert on at all. You know, I've, I've got opinions on American foreign policy, but how informed are they really? I mean, I went to seminary, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. It's like, do, do people really need, you know, the next, uh, you know, my, my hot take on uh, politics or any, actually, it's funny, my mom, who's just on Twitter to troll me, uh, <laughs> I, I said something about politics, um, and she said, why don't you stick to talking about you know, theology or something you know something about. Oh, she my said, word. Oh, mom. I know, right? I was like, guys, help. My mom's trolling me here. This is, but, you know, she had a point. I... <laughs> well, maybe you need to um, get a book deal about it, and then you can be researching, and then there you'll be you an go. expert. In, then in I will be an expert, and then I will opine at, at <laughs> will. <laughs> All right, let's take a, a moment for a coffee break and hear a word from our friends at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. We're speaking to Drew Dick, author of Your Future Self Will Thank You, which is a book about self-control. Um, Drew, the, the book is published by Moody. Um, you're an acquisitions editor at Moody. So here's something I've wondered. What are the ins and outs of acquiring a, your own book? Like, are, are you a tough negotiator with yourself? Were there yeah. some things you just couldn't compromise, even though you were really being persuasive with yourself? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, brought it, I, <laughs> I brought it to the team. I said, listen, we got, I got an author. He's a total rock star. He's a, 
He's a bit of a prima donna, so you got to treat him really gently. Uh, no, <laughs> it was a little awkward, I'll be honest. So because I, I kind of brought it up with my boss. You know, I'd written a couple other books before, yeah. so it wasn't totally out of left field. But, yeah, I work for Moody, and then all of a sudden I want to write a book for Moody. Yeah. And he said, yeah, okay, cool, you know, give me the proposal. Had to go through the, the same hoops that other people do, and then I had to recuse myself from the meetings where they uh, talked about yeah. behind my back. And I was tempted to do sort of a George Costanza Seinfeld thing where I hid a tape recorder in the meetings <laughs> that I could retrieve later. Okay. But that didn't work out. So I anyway, I'll never know what they said. Yeah, uh, I thought when you said Costanza, you're gonna you were referring to the episode where he created a bed under his desk. Do you remember that? <laughs> I thought you like you meant you're gonna like sleep under there so you could hear what they're saying. That's another persistent fantasy of mine. Yeah. But yeah. No, I, yeah. I know it went totally like that. I just like the idea of you negotiating with yourself and, and uh <laughs> Having to approve your own cover idea and all those right. sorts of things, yeah. Talk that, to my own lawyer, that kind of stuff. That's fantastic, right. yeah. Okay, um, so you, you talk in the book about how habits uh, transform us. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and first of all, let me just acknowledge there is a, a sort of theological difficulty here, right? Because I don't want to suggest that, you know, um, there's some sort of uh, neurological life hack that you can do that, you know, outsource your holiness. But I think, and, and what I mean by habits are just those patterns of behavior in our life, right? And thanks to the study about the brain, we know more about how they work. Um, and so I think it's it's just wise to uh, institute certain patterns in your life so you're not constantly just depending upon your own willpower to do things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, like, and for instance, like the, a guy who wakes up and runs 10 miles every morning, as I know you do, Jared. Yes. Um, yeah, right. You know how this works. So he, he's not slapping himself in the face going, <laughs> okay, I got to get up for this, man. I got, I got to, you know, to push myself here to do this. No, it's, it's a habit, right? If he's done it long enough, it's just automatic. And so I think a lot of things in life can be like that. Uh, you know, people that have, uh, instituted these spiritual disciplines in their lives, they're not always just having to drag themselves to do it. I think once you establish those patterns in your life, they can kind of carry you. Um, there, uh, who was it? I think it was John Ortberg, Pastor John Ortberg, who had a great expression. He said, habits eat willpower for breakfast, hmm. meaning that if, one, if there are two guys going into a situation, one is depending solely upon his willpower, just sheer grit, and the other one has a good, healthy, holy habit in place, man, bet on the habit guy every single time, right? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. And, of course, I looked at, you know, the importance of ritual and repetition all throughout Scripture. Uh, even, you know, l the lowest church evangelical uh, has a lot of repetition, hopefully, built into their lives. We, we come together every week. We sing songs with Lyrics we already know. We listen to sermons usually about that are conveying truths that we already believe in and know. But we need to be reminded. We need those kind of those patterns um, in our lives. And so, um, yeah. And then you know, I looked at the the science a little bit behind it. You know, how long does it take to create a habit, <clears throat> and the, the different parts of the habit loop, which I think are helpful. Um, so one kind of silly way in which this helped me. So I realized I had a bad habit of rolling out of bed in the morning and grabbing my uh, phone off my nightstand and jumping onto social media first mm. thing. And really what I wanted to do is start each day uh, with some time in the word. And I'd always mean to, I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to check Twitter and then, Oh, I'm going to check my email and then I'll get over to my Bible app. And of course that never happened. Cause I'd be like 
still looking at social media or email, and then I'd have <laughs> one of my kids come into my room, and then the day starts, and it's over, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I realized, though, that was like a habit for me. There, the cue was seeing my phone there on the nightstand, and it would trigger this habit. So eventually what I had to do, I tried reading it on my phone for a while. That didn't work. So I had to actually get it off my nightstand, drag my big black Bible out of retirement, plunk it down there. And so now when I roll out of bed, and that's not every morning, but it made a big difference, my Bible's there rather than my phone. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? So it's just a simple little change, but that actually had a big benefit for my life. Uh, so instead of starting your day in the cesspool of social media, yeah, <laughs> you, you'll get to that. You know, I mean, you, you know, uh, <laughs> right. But yeah, starting starting your morning with just even a few minutes in the Word makes a big difference. So yeah, but uh, to begin with, however, for something to become a habit, you know, don't you have to kind of grit uh, in the beginning, or yes, you know, have um, you know a a measure of faith that what you're committing to while it doesn't show immediate benefits will have, you know, sort of the, the outcome at the end. Um, I, I remember um, Steve Timmis sharing this illustration and I don't think it's original to him. It, it may be, but I don't think it is uh, about, you know, Mr. Will and Mr. Affections, uh, mm. you know, getting up every morning um, to go see the sunrise. And sometimes Mr. Affections, is, uh, you know, just bounding out of bed. He's ready to go. Um, but sometimes Mr. Will has to rouse Mr. Affections up and, and sort of push him up the hill <laughs> to go to go see the sunrise. And I just think, man, in, in my life, for so many things that are of benefit to me, Mr. Will has to constantly be pushing Mr. Affections um, around. And the affections do come, but I have to kind of, you know, kind of grip my teeth there and um, you know, trust that there's going to be a payoff uh, to these things in in the end. I like that. I like the way he put that because uh, yeah. I think that's true. We can all testify to that that battle. I like the way you put it too in in uh, the Imperfect Disciple, where you talk about you're in Romans seven before your feet even hit the carpet in the morning, right? It's like <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I can't identify. I'm probably a little more sanctified than you, yeah. but uh, you definitely yeah. are. You definitely are. <laughs> <laughs> you put an actual uh -oh. Bible on your nightstand. I, I just started making myself uh, look at my Bible on my phone first thing in the morning. Um, yeah, so it, like that's actually a little discipline that I – because I had the same problem, which is I use my phone as my alarm. And so the first thing I'm looking at is my phone, even if it's just to turn off my alarm. And then it's like, well, let me just look at my email or, you know, that sort of thing. Sure, and so I had exactly. to, I had, I had to kind of, you know – grit my way into saying, no, let me look at the Word. Even if it's just on my phone, before my feet hit the floor, I, I want God's voice in my ears, basically. Yeah, I love that. And you're right. Okay, so some people think, oh, habits, that just makes everything easy, right? Well, no, of course, not initially, because when you're forming a habit, you're engaging in a difficult or novel task, right? You're mm -hmm. not used to it. And I think sometimes with spiritual disciplines, you, 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 you know, jump into it and you go, man, this doesn't feel good. This is not inspiring. I'm not, you know, getting the warm fuzzies from this. And you assume something's wrong. Yeah. Not necessarily. It's probably just because you're a sinful person who's not used to doing these things. And, um, of course, the beauty of, of habits is that it gets easier as you go uh, because it does become ingrained. And often, at least my experience with spiritual disciplines, is that the joy doesn't come right away and the inspiration. But when you stick with it, 
um, even in the absence of those good feelings, uh, they will inevitably come at some point, at least. Yeah. Uh, right. And of course, you're not doing it just for you know a shot of inspiration or or to feel good either. You're doing it out of obedience. Um, but the good feelings are nice too, and they do come eventually. Yeah. What are some habits that you you think would be beneficial to the pastors listening? We have, um, you know, our, our audience is pretty uh, diverse in, in terms of vocation, but um, I think probably the majority of the people who listen to this podcast um, are either in vocational ministry or they're serving in some way in their church. But speak to the ministry leader for a second, and and what are some habits? that you think would be extra beneficial for them beyond just the normal, uh, you know, spiritual disciplines of, you know, uh, Bible intake and, and prayer and so on. Yeah. Well, I'm probably going to disappoint everyone because I don't have any sort of like super esoteric habits, but what I can say, so researchers talk about keystone habits. You've probably heard of these basically keystone habits are like extra important habits because not only do they yield a benefit in and of themselves, but they actually exert a positive influence across the spectrum of your life. So, for instance, um, you know, eating dinner together, they've shown as a keystone habit. Mm. The kids get better grades. Your marriage is better. It just has all these positive benefits for your family life. Um, uh, exercise is another one. When you exercise, uh, not only, obviously, do you get more healthy, um, but you are like you are more likely to be productive at work. You're more likely to resist certain destructive behaviors. Um, prayer is another one. Uh, and this is just incredible. And it's not even like a ton of prayer. If you pray like or, or sit and kind of meditate for five or ten minutes a day, and of course there's intrinsic value to prayer. We know as Christians we want to commune with God. Um, but it also um, will yield all kinds of benefits to your life. Um, anyway, so... One thing I would say, even though, yes, most of the people listening to this, I realize, are church leaders, don't neglect those basic spiritual disciplines because I know how it can be. You can get to the place, and this is really toxic for your life, when the only time you open the Bible is to teach it, when the only time you pray is in public, right? And that that's just really destructive to your soul. So you want to make sure that you're nurturing that vertical relationship with God through habits that facilitate that. The other one, this is one we've done as a family, very imperfectly, albeit, uh, but is have a no screen Sunday. Mm. Um, and that's just what it sounds like, right? Because like we were talking about, tech is so invasive, you're constantly inundated with messages um, that just carving out, and it maybe it's not even Sunday, maybe it's like no phone after seven, some sort of a bright line strategy where you go, you know what? I need to carve out some time for solitude, for family, um, in my life. So some places where tech can't crowd in and distract me constantly. That's especially important, I think, especially nowadays. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, chapter seven. You're responding to the claim that grace means I don't need self-control. Yeah. Um, how does that argument go? Could you tease that out a little bit? And why would somebody say that? And then what do you say in response to that? Yeah. So, and I think that's a, a common assumption. May, I don't know. Maybe I'm overstating that. But I think that often there's this perception, at least, that grace and self-control are you know, maybe in different camps or that they're even antithetical, right? Because the okay. thinking is, if, if God forgives us, you know, by his grace, he saved us, he forgives us, not only for past sins, but for, for uh, future sins that we commit, 
um, as we confess them, uh, the thinking is, well, why would I need self-control, right? <laughs> if there's more forgiveness, there's more grace always on tap. Um, and of course, the Apostle Paul anticipated this sort of thinking. He said, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Right. And the answer is, by no means, or heaven forbid, depending on your translation. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, right? And so, and I think there's also this, um, in, in, the, in the book I go through, all these passages that show, you know, that self-control or holiness more generally is, you know, goes part and parcel with God's grace. And it doesn't preclude, of course, the empowerment of God's spirit. That's another mistake people make. They think, well, I got to live a holy life. I got to exercise self-control. Well, I'm just going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and get this thing done. That That is a sure way to failure because like we were talking about, it's a fruit of the spirit. It's something that grows in our life when we're connected to God. And actually, I think grace is the engine of self-control. Um, one of the studies that I, I, I read about when I was researching for this was, it was actually diet researchers that looked at people that messed up on their diet. And they'd have like one small indiscretion, like say they you know had a piece of candy or a, one slice of pizza. The interesting thing is what would often follow that indiscretion was a full-on binge, right? They called it the... The what the heck effect, okay? Uh, so, and, and we've been here, right? I mean, it's like, okay, I messed up my diet. Oh, what the heck? And now I'm just going to go nuts. That's right, right. yes. Um, yeah. Wait, and, that's wrong? You shouldn't do that? Yeah, exactly. What? <laughs> that's not how it's supposed to work? Um, <laughs> no, I, know. I read about that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. Um, someone's been spying on me. Uh, and then they, they observed kind of the opposite phenomenon, which was the fresh start effect. And this is the, the phenomenon that they observed where people, when they perceive that they have a blank slate, or they're starting fresh, their behavior actually improves. And this might be a, a bit of a stretch because this isn't about dieting, but I was just thinking about Christian life. And as Christians, of course, we have the ultimate fresh start, right? We're, we're forgiven by God. Grace, we receive God's unmerited um, favor and forgiveness. We're cleansed, we're adopted. And what follows that? Just psychologically, I don't think if you really internalize grace, when you really get it, um, you don't. That doesn't make you want to run out and sin. That actually makes you want to live a life of holiness, to strive for godliness. Um, of course, empowered by God's Spirit. So I just think practically too. And, and, and the other thing is, a lot of people think, well, that the way to holiness is I just really need to beat myself up. I need to wallow in guilt. No, that just spurs more bad behavior. Because you're hopeless. You know, the, the answer for self-control is to keep diving back into grace okay. because that's, that's the power. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that was really my next question is what is the place of grace in this? If it's not a sort of you know, all-smiling all permissiveness um, to <laughs> a lack of self-control, um, what is the role of grace in, in the work of our exercising self-control? Yeah, well, I mean, in short, I think it's everything. Mm. Um, and, and when you disconnect from that and you do kind of start thinking, especially if you have, you know, a, a modicum of success in living a better Christian life, you know, whatever that means. But, I mean, like your behavior improves or something. And then all of a sudden you start to go, you know what, I'm doing pretty good here. And you stand on top of your own accomplishments and start looking down on other people, patting yourself on the back. Well, of course, from a Christian standpoint, you've already failed the biggest self-control test, which is to not be prideful <laughs> right? yeah. uh, and self-sufficient. Um, so, yeah, we never, 
Because, I mean, even, yeah, it, it goes so deep. Even the desire to live the Christian life, to live a life of holiness that pleases God, to exercise self-control, that comes from God in the first place. Yes. You wouldn't have that desire if it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for his mercy. Um, and so there's no point at which you can say, and then even in the process of it, um, you know, of course the $10 word for this is sanctification. If you think that you're kind of doing it by yourself, you're delusional uh, because the whole process is aided and empowered by God. So it's all throughout that. Um, I think there's an opposite air too, though, and that is the sort of let go and let God mentality where people just kind of go, if I'm exerting any effort in this thing they call the Christian life, obviously I'm doing something wrong and they equate passivity with spirituality and just want to like, you know, relax and, and take a pleasure cruise toward holiness. That's not how it works either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, to answer your question, man, yeah, grace is inseparable from this topic. Yeah. So I, I just find it really interesting. Um, in Titus chapter two, Paul uh, talks about grace training us or mm. instructing us. Uh, I think the ESV says training. Um, the grace of God has appeared. This is Titus two verses 11 and 12 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. So in, in, in a sense, grace is training us to be self-controlled. How is it that grace, which is God's work, how, how does God's work train us, God's work in Christ train us for the work of self-control and and denying worldly lusts. It, it, it sounds like a paradox, Ooh. is it not? I mean... Oh, it totally is a paradox. <laughs> and it's all throughout Scripture. Like, yeah. um, even when it comes to the, like, okay, the divine agency versus my efforts, right? I think of, you know, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm. That sounds like it's kind of on me, but then the next words are, for it is God who works in you <laughs> to will and to act. Uh, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, you you see them in in tandem, and I think you know in a couple of ways, grace uh, empowers this training, and that is that obviously you're by the grace of God, you're regenerated, you're saved, and that's obviously essential uh, to exercise self control. But then there's just a gratefulness element to yes. it, I think, too, right? Where you you realize that you didn't deserve this, you didn't choose that, you 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 couldn't have affected this on your own. And what flows from that, again, is a desire to strive. And, of course, it's difficult to live a holy life. Yeah. yeah. So um, your, your subtitle for the book, um, again, we're talking about Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. And you, you, you referenced some of this earlier in terms of habits and things. Um, wh- what is brain science saying? Because that just sounds super, super nerdy. <laughs> And um, but also super cool. Uh, what did you learn about brain science? Well, I just wanted that in there because the marketers told me I'd sell twice as many books if we said <laughs> brain science on the okay. cover. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, I, yeah, no, it's. I mean, you know, I think it goes back to. And of course, I'm not an, uh, a psychologist or a, a doctor, um, but I just read a lot of uh, studies and literature on it and found some fascinating things. Um, and again, I don't want to overstate the case either, because I mean, you know, Christians for millennia did not have knowledge, uh, intimate knowledge of the inner workings of our brains, and yet 
they they had all they needed in scripture. Uh, but I think it is interesting when you see that you know, for instance, the the studies that they did only about twenty years ago on willpower and found that it's a finite resource. Uh, in other words, it, it runs out, it's depletable. Um, and seeing the ways in which that aligns quite perfectly, in my opinion, with what Scripture teaches about our nature, that we're these fallen, finite creatures. Um, and so in that case, you go, wow, okay, I do not have this infinite amount of willpower. I need community. I need accountability. Um you know, I need divine empowerment because I can't do this all on my own. And then understanding, you know, how habits work at a neurological level, you know, how, you know, when you're doing something that's new or difficult, you're using your prefrontal cortex. Uh, and then when it actually becomes something that's automatic, it gets relegated to a different part of the brain. Uh, so it frees up space in your frontal cortex to tackle new tasks. Anyway, and so some of those things are just kind of helpful to realize what's going on, of course, God created our brains, so I think understanding them um, helps us, uh, you know, understand some of our behaviors uh, better. And so, yeah, and I just, again, over and over, I was just amazed at how how much alignment there was between some of the, the neuroscience and the sociology um, with what Scripture teaches us about how we function. Yeah. It, it's almost yeah. as if as if God designed the brain. And... Almost. Almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a surprise. Yeah. No, that's right. fantastic, brother. Hey, Drew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, man, this has been fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah. We've been speaking with Drew Dick, author of the new book, Your Future Self Will Thank You. It's available wherever quality books are sold. And you probably need it, so you should go ahead and go get it. I'm noticing uh, I actually have my wife's copy of your book in my hands. Uh, that's what I've, that's what I've been using for reference, and so I'm noticing all the things that she's underlined, and I'm and I'm wondering because I'm paranoid if when she's noting something she's thinking about me or if she's of course she is yeah of course she is and yeah. I, I noticed there's one line she underlined and had a footnote and I tracked the footnote or endnote and uh, she underlined a Stephen Furtick quote and so oh, there's no. I'm I'm doubly appalled that she would underline that and also that you would have that in the in the book but. I, uh, it's a, it's actually a very good quote, to be honest with it you. It is a good quote. It, it is. is. <laughs> I, I didn't even know who said it originally, and then I looked it up after the fact. You know, I was writing. I put the yeah. quote in there, and then I looked it up after the fact because, okay, spoiler alert, I'm not a big fan of Stephen Furtick's theology. I'm sure he's a great guy. Um, yeah, so that was like, do I put it in there or not? I'm glad you saw that. And I got to say this, too. Yeah. Uh, Be- Becky, your wife, is my favorite Wilson. Oh, right. Like I, well, she's yeah. mine, too. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Well, and she's, I've been in your house, and she fed me a ton of food. Yes. I did not have exercise self-control you, ate way too much. Yeah, you and have to really gird up. So underlining my book. Yeah, you have to really gird up self-control when you come into my house when, 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 when Becky's catering uh, uh, our parties. Uh, but no, she and I'll just you know pass this along to you, and also for the benefit of our um, our audience, uh, she really loved the book and um, just really benefited from it quite a bit and talked it up quite a bit. So I was excited to talk to you That's uh, awesome. about, I about it. it. So I do commend it to you, dear uh, listener. Uh, maybe you don't need the book, right? I'm sure you just have you know perfect self control, but someone you love uh, probably could benefit. Uh, it's from the it. worst. It's the worst gift book. I gotta say that. Well, no, yeah. don't say you, that. Don't you, say that. If you hand it to someone, you say, "I saw this book and I thought and of I you." And I thought of you, uh, mainly because it talks about brain science, and I think I really want to understand why you're so weird. Uh, that would be good. 
Uh, also, um, as always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes. There's some really weird people out there who put bad reviews for weird reasons. We we got to counteract those. So all you good-hearted people, uh, get out there and uh, and give us a good review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.